The search for identity is huge today. It's been huge for all of history. But it seems like something that in our, in our cultural consciousness in the world today is uh, especially a heightened issue. And we're going to talk about that for the, about the first half of today. Uh, the confusion that marks our world today. The confusion around this issue of who am I and what am I supposed to do. The basic stuff of life. Why do I exist? What has God created me to be? Now, I'm going to assume some things at the beginning here at the outset. Sexual identity is what we're going to talk about in some basic terms today. But there, And I'm going to assume you all know where you land on that. But there's some stuff deeper than that underneath that that is about our identity as people who we're called to be and what we're called to do. And uh, I don't know about you, but I know that for me, that has been a long, hard slog to get a very clear sense of who God's called me to be. You know, a, a sense of my identity. I know that uh, it started probably in kindergarten at First Christian Church of Johnson City when I had my first birthday party, or at least the first birthday party that I remember having. It was a birthday party with all my kindergarten friends at First Christian there in Johnson City, and it was a fireman-themed uh, birthday. And it was a fireman-themed birthday because I was sure that's what I wanted to be when I grew up. That's the first thing I remember thinking, this is something I can do that I want to do. I want to become this. I don't know if you remember those kinds of things as a, as a kid. One of the other things as a kid that I wanted to do was become a, duh, professional athlete, which is pretty much every other boy in America at some point along the way. Uh, how many of you all wanted to be professional baseball players? <laughs> I know a few of you all did, for sure. For sure, Tommy Staggs is back there with his hand raised high. I also wanted to be a professional basketball player. Maybe not at the same time. One would have sufficed. Uh, and then I also wanted to be a professional soccer player, which is one that I held on to too long. There was no chance of that, especially with my ankles. So I held on to that too long. It's something that I really actually kind of thought, even in college, man, it would be awesome if I could do this for the rest of my life. Be a professional soccer player. That's, that's what I want to do. That's what I'm called to be. Well, along the way, I went through lots of other... Uh, versions of my identity, my calling, who I thought I was supposed to be. Uh, many of you all probably identify with some of this. In college, I had uh, a few majors. <laughs> I was first a psychology major, which is half of people who go into college as freshmen anyway. Admit it, most of you are like, yeah, I wanted to be a psychologist. Of course you did. Half of freshmen in America go in as psychology majors. The other half are business majors. Oh, I know a few of you all would not appreciate that. I also along the way thought I was going to be a philosopher, so I changed to philosophy major. What do you do with that? Teach. Third thing I thought was I wanted to be a theologian. So I ended up with theological studies, and I wanted to, uh, to, to go on and get a couple degrees, at least seven or eight degrees. And uh, I even along the way, for, for a little bit of time, not a whole lot, but for a little bit of time, I went to the extremes of what I thought God called me to be and what I thought he wanted me to be, which was, on the one hand, a missionary, on the other hand, a lawyer. I really actually did consider that, Jeff. I'm not just making that up. I'm not just making that up. It's a long, hard slog. It's not easy. And it's something where there are lots of voices giving us information, giving us ideas, giving us feedback. We're hearing lots of 
ideas about who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to become. And it's not an easy task. It's not an easy thing to figure out. The search for identity is really huge in terms of what we do with our life, how we steward the resources we have, what kind of job we have, how we consider our calling as a maybe a spouse or a father or a mother or a husband or a wife, a grandparent. It affects all kinds of things in our lives. And it's something that you think on the face of it, I always knew what I was going to do. That's like 10% of us. It wasn't until about two, three years ago when I had a pretty clear sense, this is what I'm supposed to do for the rest of my life. I had the sense that I was supposed to, to preach and to lead, but I, but I wasn't sure that if it was just those two things and these other six or seven things that I thought I'm supposed to do these too, right? Like I'm supposed to put all my time and energy into this kind of identity, which was eight things. But until about two years ago when I received a little card uh, from some friends here at church, it took me till I was about 40 years old to have a clear sense of who I'm called to be. This is a little card that was made by Cindy Garskevich and Marlene Evans. They're a couple in our congregation, a mom and a daughter. And it's a little pop-up thing here. And on the front it says, uh, Acts 20:28, 20, one of my favorite verses. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I, I saw that and I thought, I, I can do that. I want to do that. That's who I am. And of course, I didn't even get to the, the, the cool part, the 3D part on the inside where it's got a picture of me uh, in front there. And it says this, Thank you, Pastor Scott, for all God called you to be. It took a long time for me to understand what He called me to be is who I am now. Went through a lot of education, a lot of different routes, a lot of listening to other people's voices about who I was supposed to be. And I, and I know that, I'm not going to ask you to raise hands, but I know that I'm not the only one in the room who has struggled with becoming who God wanted me to be. Now, now, on top of that, consider you're not even sure or of your sexual identity. That is a, a pressure and a weight and a confusion uh, that most of us most of us have no idea what that's like. Topple that on top of all the normal concerns and pressures and responsibilities and callings in life that we put into this word of identity. Put that on top of all that, and what you get in the world especially is confusion. And I want to paint a, a picture of that confusion for a little bit here today before we jump into the Scripture. We're going to talk about the confusion that is in the world about this kind of issue, and then we're going to talk about biblical clarity uh, as to our calling and our identity in life. Mount Holyoke College is a well-known school uh, for women. And uh, recently, they came out with something about admission of transgender students. I'm going to read you some of this. And, and please be aware that this is one little tiny small incident of Example after example after example after example after example of this kind of thing going on in our society and in our world today. Admission of transgender students. Question number one under FAQs, is Mount Holyoke College 
changing the fundamental nature of its mission as a women's college by admitting transgender students? This is what the answer is. Listen carefully to some of the verbiage here. Mount Holyoke, am I pronouncing Holyoke correctly? Thank you, I knew you'd know. Mount Holyoke remains committed to its historic mission as a women's college. Yet, concepts of what it means to be a woman, a woman are not static. Traditional binaries, b- binary is a word, uh, if you say male and female are the options, then you're speaking about binary options. It's one or the other. Non-binary is this whole huge range of sexual identity beyond that. In fact, there are countries in the world today that speak of the third gender, which is a sort of a, an asexual, genderless uh, category. And, and, and it's something that you identify yourself by. You say, I am this. I identify myself as this. Why? Because it's Tuesday. Why? Because somebody else I like tells me that. Why? Because there's a whole group of people over here with which I want to identify for some reason or the other. This is the kind of thinking where the social construct is what informs sexual identity. Is Mount Holyoke College changing the nature of its mission? No, Mount Holyoke remains committed to its historic mission as a women's college, yet concepts of what it means to be a woman are not static. Traditional binaries around who counts as a man or woman are being challenged by those whose gender identity does not conform to their biology. The case we'll be making is that biology is the gender. And of course there are exceptions to that. There are very rare exceptions. Uh, Most estimates of exceptions to a sexual biological gender of male and female. Most studies are 0.018% of the population up to as many as 0.1% of the population are born as, uh, we'll see in a little bit here, uh, born as intersex or what we used to call hermaphrodites. So it's the exception that proves the rule. So we're going to talk about how God made us biologically one or the other. Traditional binaries around who counts as a man or woman are being challenged by those whose gender identity does not conform to their biology. Those bringing forth these challenges recognize that such categorization is not independent of political and social ideologies. In other words, political and social ideologies in the world, social construct can inform what my gender is by my choice. Just as early feminists argued that the reduction of women to their biological functions, which is not a reduction of women, by the way, just as early feminists argued that the reduction of women to their biological functions was a foundation for women's oppression, we must acknowledge that gender identity is not reducible to the body. Instead, we must look at identity in terms of the external context in which the individual is situated. It is this positionality that biological and trans women share. And it is this positionality that is relevant when women's colleges open their gates for those aspiring to live, learn, and thrive within a community of women. Question number two. Mount Holyoke's college policy on the admission of transgender students states that it welcomes applications for its undergraduate program from any qualified student who is female or identifies as a woman. Can you clarify the question, who is female or identifies as a woman? So these are the categories of self-identified females that they will admit. Biologically born female 
but identifies as a woman. Biologically born female, but identifies as a man. Biologically born female, but identifies as other slash they slash they, which is a made up pronoun that is a, an everybody pronoun. We'll look at some of those later. Biologically born female does not identify as either woman or man. That's that third gender. Biologically born male, but identifies as woman. Biologically born male identifies as other slash they slash they. There's that uh, pronoun. That's part of inclusivist language. Biologically born male, but identifies as other slash they slash they. And when other slash they identity includes woman. I'm not sure what that means. Biologically born with both male and female anatomy, which is intersex or what we used to call hermaphrodite, and also identifies as a woman. The following academically qualified students cannot apply for admission consideration. Biologically born male identifies as man. Question number five, if a trans woman decides during her four years as a student to change her mind and chooses a male gender identity, will she need to withdraw from the college? What about biologically female students who come to identify themselves as male? Anybody else kind of confused about where we are in the male? Yeah. Yeah. No. Once students are admitted, the college supports them regardless of their sex or gender identity, which is consistent with our current practice. Question number seven, how does the Office of Admission know whether it has received an application from a transgender student? The Office of Admissions only knows if the student self-identifies as transgender. Now, lest we think this is just a problem out there, I know someone personally who for years and years and years and years was married for years and years and years and years, was a minister for years and years and years and years, was a CEO of a church planting organization for 30 plus years. His name was Paul. Now his name is Paula. Or her name is Paula, sorry. I wasn't really trying to be silly there. I just didn't say it right. This is someone who because of their feelings of female decided, you know what? I want my outside to feel like my inside. Which is to place the locus of authority about one's gender identity, the locus of authority about one's sexual identity, not in the sexual body, organs, not in the way that God made us biologically, but to make the locus of the authority my feelings. There's a world of confusion about this issue. We could go on and on and on. Let me just point out a few more things. Who knows uh, about the acronym, what's sort of an acronym, LGBT? You've seen that, I assume, most of you. Lesbian, bisexual, transgender, Gay, LG, no, I'm sorry, lesbian, gay, transsexual, bisexual. It is now at least LGBTQIA2S, which is lesbian, gay, 
bisexual, transgender, or transsexual people kind of use that the same way. And I just want to point these out to you so you're aware of uh, some of these things. Uh, T stands for that queer or questioning. It can mean either of those. Uh, and, and queer used to be something that was said as a, well, as a, a pejorative, a, a negative term um, that probably should not be said. But they've apprehended that as something that they want to reclaim. So if you call yourself queer, you can call yourself queer, and it's an okay and good thing. Uh, so that's Q for queer or questioning. Uh, the next one, I, is intersex, which um, used to be called uh, hermaphrodite. A is for uh, a couple things, asexual or an ally. An ally is somebody who allies themselves with uh, gay and lesbian rights. Uh, and 2S means two-spirit, uh, which is drawn from Native American culture to refer to someone who lives uh, in both of the male and female worlds. Uh, a little bit here about inclusivist language. I'm not going to really try to explain this, but uh, an English professor uh, put together this little card of pronouns and, and ways to call those who self-identify a particular way instead of he, she, it, they. It's all of these. And honestly, as I read the uh, description, and I, I mean, I've got, I've got five years of graduate education on top of college, and I read most of it and thought, I'm not sure I understand half of it. This is an example of identifying oneself as the locus of authority. Identifying one's self as a particular gender identity. And this is part of the concept of gender fluidity. Um, if you're not familiar with that, to be gender fluid means you can move in and out of particular genders uh, as much as you want if it happens to be Tuesday. The next one we're going to show you is uh, the genderbred uh, person. The genderbred person here uh, demonstrates this sort of gender fluidity. And, and I just want to show you these kinds of things so you're aware of uh, the kind of culture we live in, the kind of confusion there is about these sorts of things. The genderbred person version 2.0 here is made up of three things in terms of the gender. It's your identity in terms of your mental intellectual state, the way you think about yourself, uh, the, the sexual attraction uh, that you feel, and uh, your sexual body parts actually are, are a part of it. So you express yourself based on those uh, three um, identifiers. And on the right side there are sort of the, it's the way that you can move in and out of um, descriptions like woman, man, two-spirit, genderqueer, uh, androgynous, uh, butch, hyper-masculine, um, and a whole bunch of other things. You can take that down, thanks. Yes, <laughs> there is a ton of confusion and a ton of craziness out there. And the LGBTQIA2S goes on with other descriptors. I tell you these things not so that we can just sit here and go, oh, that is so terrible. We need to be aware of this because it's real for people. It's a real issue for people. Now, I believe that they're wrong. I believe Scripture is clear about what a man or a woman is and what it means to be identified as that because God the Creator made 
us, male or female. And we'll get to that in just a second. But I just want to state up front, it's real easy to get to this place of right-wing, conservative, nut-crazy, uh, gun-toting person, which, which is me. It's real easy to get to this sort of soldier of fortune place where let's just all put them on an island somewhere. We're going to talk throughout this series. We're going to talk throughout this series about the response of Jesus to sinners like us and like them. And we're going to use John 1.14 as sort of our main text for that. We'll come to that more in the next couple of weeks as we talk about uh, same-sex marriage, or as I like to call it, so-called same-sex marriage. Uh, we'll talk about homosexuality. Uh, we'll talk about those kinds of issues in the coming weeks. But we'll keep coming back to John 1.14. John 1.14. It describes there at the beginning of John how Jesus comes to live as the fullness, as the fullness of both grace and truth. And so we're going to use that as sort of our measure going forward. So we need to be thinking about these issues, not, not simply to uh, put them in this category of the lost that are totally lost and I can't do anything about it, but the lost that I'm going to learn to love like Jesus if I don't. And, and frankly, we haven't gotten to this much this week, but in the next coming weeks, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to touch on issues that, that most of our lives are touched by in terms of people we know, people we work with, friends of ours, people in our family people in this very congregation who have struggled with issues of uh, not just gender identity, but of homosexuality. And so we'll continue to come back to these kinds of uh, questions about Jesus' response to that, especially as we move forward. So let's look to see what uh, the Bible says, what the Bible says about uh, the clarity of our calling and our identity. Turn with me to Genesis 1, if you would, please. We're just going to go through Genesis 1. We may get into verse uh, to chapter two. We may not. Not likely, actually. I want you to see one main thesis as we go through this. Our identity as people created by God, our identity as the creation created by the Creator, our identity is to do what is good for our kind. We'll come back to that word kind in just a second here. I'm using it intentionally. It sounds a little weird at first, but I'm using it intentionally. To do what is good for our kind to do, which is to be imagers of God. And we'll see that development throughout this first chapter of Genesis. Jump in at verse 1 here of Genesis 1. And we'll talk generally about the image of God here eventually. But I want you to ask two questions as we go along in Genesis 1. I want you to notice as we're going along, what does creation do? And what does God say about what creation is doing? Two things. What does creation do? And what does God say about what creation is doing? Jump in at verse 1 here. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're starting here because it's important to establish at the beginning. Scripture says unequivocally, as the authority, as the locus of authority, God is creator, we are not. God sets the rules about who we are. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In verse 2, the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There was chaos. There was no form. There was no purpose. And the Spirit of God was waiting to act. Verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. 
The light, in a sense, responded to what God said to do. Verse 4, God saw that the light was good. He makes a statement about the light doing what He told it to do. God saw that the light was good. Verse 4, And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Remember, the two questions we're asking is, what does creation do, and what does God say about what creation does? We'll see this progress throughout the entire chapter here. And God said, verse 6, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. That's a statement about it doing what God wants it to do. And verse 8, God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Now it's going to pick up a little bit here. It's going to develop a little bit more here. Look there here in verse uh, 9. And God said, yes, verse (laughs) 9. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place. Let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas. And God saw that it was, there's the word again, good. That's a statement by God about his creation doing what he's telling his creation to do. Verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Sprouting vegetation is uh, like like something we're going to continue to see is our command as well. Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruits, fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. The root of the English word kind is uh, the French genre or type or kind or gender. It's the same root word in English as this word here in the Hebrew, kind. It's a similar kind of meaning. So what he's saying here, Moses is is giving us a picture of God creating something for a particular purpose. And when that creation carries out that purpose, as God called it to, he says, that's good. That's good. So remember our thesis as we go along the way here is that it is good for our kind to image God. It is good for our kind to be imagers of God. And we take our cue from what Scripture tells us. And Scripture is telling us so far in chapter 1 that, that even though we don't exist yet here in chapter 1, there's a model for what's happening with creation doing what God tells it to do. And when it does what God tells it to do, He says that is good. That is good. Keep reading. Verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds. There's the word again. And trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to which there's the word again, kind. And God saw that it was good. And evening and morning, the third day. Go ahead and uh, jump down to, let's go to verse 20. Verse 20. Similar pattern, pattern going on here. God said, let the waters swarm with swarms. That's, uh, that's like the, 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 the kinds are becoming more kinds. It's a way of saying that. Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea, creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, according to their gender, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. This is the first statement like this in Scripture. It takes a little more 
appointed uh, form when it gets to us here soon in verse 26. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. We can see this pattern continuing to emerge. God tells his creation what to do. And when they do what he tells them to do, he says, that's good. Keep reading verses 24 and following. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. Do you get the picture? And God saw that it was good. Now it takes a bit of a different form here, starting at verse 26, when it is applied to humanity. And the primary distinction from humanity and the rest of creation is that our identity is bound up in this idea of being made in the image of God. And and we'll unpack that a little bit here in just a minute. Keep reading there in verse 26 and following. Then God said, and there's a lot more verbiage here about the humans. Let us make man in our image. After our likeness. Think of the word image for just a second. To say that we are made in his image is like saying we are a picture of God. Think about pictures or photos or paintings. When you look at a photo or a picture or a painting, uh, you don't ever think that's, that's the actual thing itself. It's a representation of something or someone. It's similar to that, and it even goes further than that. The analogy holds in this way. When you see a picture and you say, man, that's a really great picture. That's a good photo. Part of why you might say that is because that picture or that photo as closely resembles something about the thing that it represents as, well, it closely resembles it. A good picture more closely resembles the thing it represents. I've looked at photos before and I've, and I've thought, man, that really captures the heart of that person. That's what God wants for us as imagers. And that's the identity piece. We, I mean, we could stop right there. Let's continue to unpack it a little bit in just a second. Here. But that, that right there is our identity. Our identity to reflect the goodness and glory of God, His heart and His character and His nature in ways that produce after that kind. You're called, I'm called, to produce God's goodness. That is your identity. Just that's it. Not plus something else. (laughs) Everything else follows from that assumption about who you are made, created to be. Let's unpack for just a couple minutes here this idea of being an imager of God. Look at verse 26 again. Then God said, let us make man, that's a generic form for humanity, uh, sort of like mankind, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now this doesn't mean we are exactly like God, but somehow like God, like the picture thing we talked about before. We are people who can, like the creation uh, as described before us, make known something about God because we're imagers. But, But this word image implies something that we're going to continue to see here in the text. It implies that we can act in a sense, in a sense, for God insofar as 
our heart and our character and our nature and what we're doing conform to His goodness and His character and His nature. I'm not saying perfection. I'm saying insofar as what we do reflects God's goodness, we are accurately imagers of Him. Keep reading here. Verse uh, 26 there. Let them have dominion. Let them have dominion. This is an important word that describes our role and our purpose. It's a parallel to when uh, it says earlier in verses 16 and 17 that the greater lights will rule the lesser lights. The parallel to that for us. So we now know that this imaging thing is some sort of responsibility. It's like a stewardship of God's creation and God's goodness, His character and His nature. And here it says the stewardship at this point is over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Eventually here it will develop later on. We'll talk about this next week. It will develop into not only are we caretakers, uh, vice regents is another way to say, not only we have dominion over uh, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, the animals and plants, it's that we are called to steward to steward people. Sounds a little crazy, but that's where we'll head next week. So to, to, to be an imager of God is the identity with which we are called to live. Flat out, straight up. It's nothing, nothing complicated. But what that means is your joy and your peace, your happiness, your contentment are all wrapped up in this purpose of as accurately reflecting God as we are able to do. And, and that identity sounds radical in a world of confusion. To say that God made you and who He says you are is your identity, is a radical idea. If we live lives, if we live lives, that conform with His goodness and His character and His holiness and His nature as a perfect God as much as we're able because His Spirit fills us, then we will experience contentment, peace, joy, purpose. Then our identity will continue to be formed after God. We will be increasingly a likeness of Him. So it is good when we continue to image God. That's the identity we're given. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are gathered because you tell us who we are. We're gathered under the authority of your word because uh, you instruct us about how to live. Father, forgive us for uh, shaking our fists at you in rebellion against who you've told us we are. Lord, we have each of us thought that we knew what happiness meant for us that we knew what uh, purpose meant for us. Uh, Lord, we repent. 
of making ourselves the idol and ask that you would continue to shape and form us into men and women who make known your goodness and your glory. Father, you've called us to an amazing task. You've called us to something we cannot possibly achieve by ourselves. And so we're gathered to humble ourselves before you because you're Lord, you are sovereign, you are good beyond our greatest thoughts of you. And we want, Lord, because you've died for us, we want to live a life of gratitude. A life of gratitude that esteems you highly. Because in the person of Jesus, you covet our sin. You assuaged your own wrath in the person of Jesus. The wrath that we deserved. And you raised him to life. Through the same Holy Spirit you've given to us. So Lord, give us increasing power as we give ourselves to you. Give us more of your spirit as we continue to commit ourselves to being who you made us to be. Father, give us strength, give us courage, and give us a community of faith around us so that as we walk this road of who you've called us to be, in the times when it is hard, in the times when it is difficult, when it uh, maybe uh, brings derision or mockery from others, Lord, that we would stay focused, that we would remember that you made us and you, you have told us who we are. Lord, give us rest in that. Give us peace in that. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.